Meanwhile, at the DC Nation, we are nice entertainment. None of the Robins ever complain. You're going to melt just like a cheap sandwich. And show you just how powerful I really am. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves DC Nation, the podcast dedicated to reviewing all the amazing content DC Comics provides to you as its fans, most notably focusing on the TV shows Gotham, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. And with me, as always, is my co-host... Hey everyone, Michael here. On this week's episode, Nico and I cover episodes of Supergirl, The Flash, and Arrow, but no DC's Legends of Tomorrow, which is off this week, or Gotham, as it's still on its long winter hiatus until April. But before we do that, we're going to kick things off with this week's news with Nico DC Headlines. Gotham casts big bad Ra's al Ghul with Deep Space Nine's Alexander Siddig. The demon's head will rear his head in Gotham this spring. TV Line has learned that Star Trek Deep Space Nine alum Alexander Siddig is set to recur as no less than Ra's al Ghul, or Ra's al Ghul, depending on your pronunciation, leader of the League of Shadows or League of Assassins in the comics. According to producers from the Fox drama, as Bruce pulls the veil off the Court of Owls, he will learn that the man pulling the strings is the enigmatic Ra's al Ghul. With a shrouded in mystery, the powerful supervillain uses cunning and deception to lay waste to his foes, presenting the future Batman with his most dangerous adversary yet. Roz, of course, has been played on the CW's Arrow by Matt Nable, while Liam Neeson portrayed the DC Comics bad guy in Christopher Nolan's Batman films. In addition to his run as Deep Space Nine's Dr. Bashir, Siddig's TV credits include Peaky Blinders, Game of Thrones, Da Vinci's Demons, and 24. The yet-to-be-renewed Gotham resumes Season 3 on Monday, April 24th, and Siddig will air sometime thereafter. Zack Snyder reveals brand new underwater Aquaman footage. After making a not-so-auspicious debut in one of Lex Luthor's quick-time files in Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, Aquaman has been the subject of much speculation, particularly in regards to how the underwater hero's world would look. Now Zack Snyder is giving fans a sneak peek at Aquaman's undersea home with a brief clip he posted on the social media app Vero, which I, in turn, saw via Nerdist.com. The footage which clocks in at about six seconds, was filmed at stage 23 on Warner Brothers Burbank Studio lot and features Aquaman swimming like a undersea centaur towards another character. The clip, which appears to be a visual effects test for Justice League, is definitely on the shorter side, but it should hopefully help assuage any fears that fans had after seeing Jason Momoa definitely maybe holding his breath in a dunk tank on a soundstage during the Batman vs. Superman cameo. In the clip, Arthur Curry, a.k.a. Aquaman, appears to be swimming towards another armored Atlantean character that we can't really make out. It could be Orm, Aquaman's half-brother who becomes the supervillain known as Ocean Master and will be played by Patrick Wilson in the Aquaman solo film. It could possibly be Volko, the Atlantean science advisor who will be portrayed by William Dafoe. But I personally think it, it just looks like a statued figure that, rather than an actual character. But we'll have to wait until Justice League hits theaters on November 17th to say for certain. Anyway, follow the link in the ACC feed to Nerdist.com for a look at the footage. 
Supergirl casts iZombie's Rahul Kahali as potential villain. Rahul Kahali, iZombie's star and noted DC enthusiast, will play a potential comic book villain on Supergirl. Kahali will guest star in episode 18 as Jack Sphere, a tech genius whose latest medical innovation, if successful, will eradicate major illness. Jack travels to National City to show off his invention to the press, including Kara and Snapper Car. But his work trip also forces Jack to face his feelings for his ex, Lena Luther. However, don't expect this to be a retread of Kali's iZombie character, a coroner attempted to eradicate zombieism, who's still pining for his ex, since there's a good chance we'll see Zack's fear develop into a full-blown villain. In, in the comics, his invention accidentally transforms Jack into Biomax, a villain with the power of mind control. Super Girl airs on Monday, 8, 7 central on CW, and iZombie returns Tuesday, April 4th at 8, 7 central. Flash Supergirl musical crossovers alternate reality plot reveal. The Flash and Supergirl will soon have something to sing about, though not under the best of circumstances. The CW on Thursday evening released the official synopsis for the superhero's upcoming musical crossover. As previously reported, the special event kicks off at the end of Supergirl's Monday, March 20th episode, airing at 8, 7 central, much as the previous DC TV crossover did. The festivities then continue the following night on Tuesday, March 21st at 8 p.m on The Flash, where Melissa Benoist, Grant Gustin, Jesse L. Martin, Victor Garber, John Barrowman, Jeremy Jordan, Carlos Valdez, and guest star Darren Chris playing the music meister will be showing off their pipes. Here are those Supergirl and Flash episode synopsis. Supergirl star-crossed. A new villain, guest star Terry Hatcher, comes to National City putting Supergirl on high alert. Meanwhile, Wynn's girlfriend Lyra gets Wynn in trouble with the law. Maggie attempts to help Wynn, but old loyalties get in the way. And the music meister attacks Supergirl. The Flash duet. Barry and team are surprised when Monel and Hank Henshaw arrive on Earth carrying a comatose Supergirl who was whammied by the music meister. Unable to wake her, they turn to Team Flash to save her. However, the music meister surprises the Flash and puts him in a similar coma, one that Team Flash can't cure. Kara and Barry wake up without their powers in an alternate reality where life is like a musical, and the only way to escape is by following the script, complete with singing and dancing to the end. I can't wait for this. It should be a ton of fun and that's the news with nico dc headlines for this week all right so we're gonna kick off our discussions this week with a supergirl episode that kind of ticked us off and kind of is that's a trend this (laughs) season it seems (laughs) with supergirl so we're gonna try to do our best to cover it without bitching and moaning too much but we will have to express some discomfort and dissatisfaction with this episode but anyway let's start talking about supergirl and the 14th episode of season to entitled Homecoming. Alex and Kara are thrilled to have their father, Jeremiah Danvers, back after he is rescued from Cadmus. The Danvers arrange a family dinner to celebrate, but things go awry when a suspicious Monel starts to question Jeremiah about his sudden return. Now, this episode was jam-packed with story elements, and while some of it felt more focused than how all over the place this season has been, it was still a mess compared to the first season. I know we complain about it every week, but the relationship aspects this week were terrible, even worse 
than two weeks ago when we mentioned how ridiculous they were in the Valentine's Day episode. One of the strongest, most important, and my favorite aspects of the first season was the strength and importance of the sisterly relationship between Alex and Kara. It was that strength that helped Alex overcome the myriad mind control and help save the city from the evil Kryptonian invasion or mind control event. It seemed to me to tie the entire season together. To damage that relationship was worse, in my mind, than any of the immature and terribly written love interest relationship drama thus far this season. It not only was unbearable to watch, but it actively hurt my fond memories from last season's much better storytelling by damaging one of the best aspects of this series, the Kara and Alex relationship. When Alex got mad at Kara for questioning Jeremiah and his motives, I was okay with that until she uttered the cringeworthy line, either you're with the family or you're not. And as she said that, I thought to myself, only Sith <laughs> deal in absolutes. Likewise, we have complained for the last few weeks at the utter embarrassment for which this series has become due to all of this immature relationship drama and seemingly high school level of relationships that have been imposed upon our favorite characters this season. This was once again on display this week with Kara and Monel's relationship. This week's episode found our new alien couple already playing house in the wake of their first kiss, which happened at the end of the previous episode. Soon after finding himself alone in the morning, Monel was joined by Kara, hot off the heels of having already saved the day and grabbing a bouquet for her new honey on the way home. Monel didn't want the fun to end, so he asked Kara if she'd take the day off to stay in bed with him. But as Kara pointed out, they have work to do at the DEO, and with that, the duo headed off to the DEO, but not before Kara asked Monel to keep their budding relationship on the DL. Of course, despite hesitantly agreeing to be silent about it, Monel broke the news to the rest of the crew in the very next scene in grand gesture fashion. Michael, I know I'm sick of talking about this, but it keeps getting worse each week, and it takes up so much of the episode, I feel like we'd be doing a disservice not to discuss it. But I mean, what more can we say about this than it has been terrible, and seriously, it's wrecking this series. All things we've already said. Yeah, I know. I I mean, I've said it before, Nico, and I'll say it again, and I think you can agree with me completely here. Supergirl is a show I have the hardest time getting motivated to watch every week in order to record this podcast. I mean, it really just is. And honestly, I don't know what else to say other than what we've already said, what you've even said today. And unfortunately, I don't see the writers even attempting to course correct this anytime soon. I mean, every episode, it almost seems to get worse in certain respects, and they keep going deeper and deeper into the things that we don't like them doing. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Michael. They seem to be unaware that anything is even wrong with the series this season. From the interviews that they've been giving and the answers they've given in those interviews, they seem to think themselves Shakespearean in their ability to write relationship drama and unaware that those of us that are comic book fans and not merely TV show fans are having a hard time watching the show each week. And I've got to imagine that you and I are not the only ones. This is not just us having trouble with it or not liking it because it's not the comics. This is an issue that I think per pervades many viewers of this show. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I think, you know, even when you mentioned us as comic book fans not terribly enjoying it at times. I don't even know if it's just because we're comic book fans that that's the case because I'm totally okay with Alex and Kara having a relationship. Alex doesn't even exist in the comic books. I'm totally okay with John Jones heading the DEO. That's not how the comic books go. I'm, I'm okay with all the adaptions that they've done in terms of it being on paper, but what, what I'm having an issue with and what you're having an issue with is the CW bubbly high school relationship drama that the 
show never really was and was never supposed to be. And I think at the beginning fought so hard to distance itself from to give it the credibility that it needed that we ended up giving it by the end of last season. It, in fact, even before the end of last season, halfway through, I would say. So that's where I struck that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I seriously think the loss of Callista Flockhart has been unimaginably destructive to this season. And it, it's it's amazing that how much heart and how much she anchored this series and kept it from devolving into what it has become this season. And I don't know if that's necessarily Callista Flockhart doing it, but I think the Cat Grant character was absolutely involved in that. And I, I, I just don't know why they haven't tried to do more with the, the Snapper Carr character right. to to ground Kara, to keep her on message, to keep her focused. They they started to do it when he was first introduced, and maybe the, maybe they felt like people didn't like that interaction between those two. But I, I think she needs a strong mentor, and I think she needs someone to keep her grounded in her Kara aspect of her life to keep the Supergirl aspect of her life also grounded and moving forward in the right direction. This so- whole season was supposed to be about finding the real Kara Danvers, the real Supergirl, and how it all works together. And they've kind of abandoned that mid-season to not really worry about it and deal more with, you know, who she's with and who everybody else is with and what, what it's like to be a high school person in love. You know, it just, it, it frustrates me and it frustrates you. And it, and you're right. It's not about the adaptations from the comics because most of the stuff that they have done has been really good storytelling wise. It's this other add on stuff that is really, really killing the show. Well, and even real quick, going off of what you said about Cat Grant not being around, I almost wonder too if the lack of Jimmy Olsen has been a huge detriment to the show as well. Because even this episode and last week's episode, didn't James wasn't even in it. Yeah. And his role has been so severely diminished that at this point, he's literally only still in existence on the series because of his role as Guardian. If he were not Guardian, I don't think he would have a place. And I think that's a problem too. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right about that. The fact that at the beginning of the season, they decided that they were going to end the Kara and Jimmy Olsen story and, and love interest that had been building all of the first season. They had put them together at the end of the season or implied that they were going to get together at the end of the season. And then they had their one moment and then decided, no, we're going to focus on ourselves and, and our careers and this is not the right time for this. At that moment, that's when all of this started, you know? <laughs> so Yeah, well, and that was really more of a Kara decision than it was a Jimmy decision, too. Right, right, right. And he had to he had to deal with that, and that was sort of what sparked him to become the Guardian. And I think from that one moment, you can kind of spark out and, and, and trace back all of our discontent with this season because it split him off on the Guardian path, and he hasn't really been Jimmy Olsen for a long time on this series because there just isn't enough time for him to be both for what they're doing with him because of the diminished role that you you just mentioned. So yeah, I can I can kind of trace everything back to that decision for this season and maybe just going overboard with everybody else's relationship stuff. Definitely. Anyway, we're going to 
get back to this episode and talk about the Cadmus alert that pitted Supergirl and Martian Manhunter against a bunch of Cadmus minions who were transporting something special in an armored semi-truck in which they found after the battle Alex and Kara's father Jeremiah Danvers chained within one of the trucks. Almost everyone except Monel was over the moon about Jeremiah's miraculous return. As expected when Monel voiced his concerns about how easy it was to save Jeremiah and that it probably meant something was up, Kara and the team shrugged it off. But Jeremiah admitted that there was something going on after all. According to him, Cadmus was transporting a nuclear fission bomb with the intent of detonating it and blaming it on the aliens. The mysterious bomb and the fact that Jeremiah was the only one capable of stopping it added to Monel's suspicion about Jeremiah's true intentions. When he brought it up again during Jeremiah's welcome home party, Kara told him off and rather than listen to reason, blew it up in relationship BS drama and kicked him out of the party because that is the mature reaction. As Jeremiah was escorting Monel out, he threatened Monel saying he knows who Monel really is and doubts Kara would like the truth. So Michael, they once again mentioned the mystery about Monel, so let's first discuss that and then we'll get back to Jeremiah because this threat from Jeremiah has me wondering who Monel really is, what are his true intentions, and how do they connect to Kara? And why did he have to lie in the first place? Was it out of shame for who he is or was, or to hide some ulterior motive? What are your thoughts, and did Jeremiah's words give you any new thoughts or insight into this? Well, I think you were spot on a few weeks, or maybe it was months ago, Nico. I honestly have lost track. But I think Monel is actually the Daxmite prince that he spoke of who saved him earlier this season. Obviously, Monel isn't his real name, even in the comic books. In the comics, Monel was found by young Clark Kent back in Smallville when he was a teenager, and he named him Monel simply because he found him on a Monday, and L, of course, was Kal-El's last name. Mon's real name is, in fact, Largand, and I would be surprised if that wasn't his actual name in this series as well. If, in fact, he is the Daxmite Prince, he may be hiding out in fear of whoever was searching for him, or fear of rebels, or fear of something or another, maybe even his own people in some respect. Um, or it may be out of shame, as you suggested, as he seems to want to atone for his past and his past sins and his past life and the way he used to be. Those, I mean, that would be my thoughts on Manel's secret identity at this point. I think he truly wants to change. I think he truly wants to be where he is now. So I don't know if he has any ulterior motives beyond hiding out from whoever is pursuing him. But yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of shame and fear of being found by his family's enemies or whomever is searching for him for whatever reason. It could even be that the Daxamites had committed uh, essentially war crimes mm -hmm. or something in the universe and now the guardians of the universe or the people who do the intergalactic justice are coming after them and that's why the bounty hunters or why people are after him or maybe they were on a part of a rebellion in that uh galactic government you know and so he's a political prisoner or political rebel and that's why the dominators saw him knew who he was and let him go because they agree with what he he had done as the prince of daxamite so i think there's a lot of potential here a lot of good story potential and i hope it doesn't get drowned out by all the other concerns we've had with this season and we lose out on some really great storytelling yeah now getting back to jeremy 
Jeremiah. Much of this episode focused on figuring out what Jeremiah was up to. After keeping an eye on him at the suggestion of Monel, Wynn discovered that Jeremiah used his brand new DEO keycard to access the server room so he could hack the file system. When questioned about it, Jeremiah explained that he was only trying to get caught up on what he had missed. While this discovery finally put Kara on the skepticism train, Alex was still certain that her father should be trusted, which led to that terrible scene I mentioned before. Michael, at what point did you suspect Jeremiah was going to betray the team? I was suspicious after he threatened Monel, but I wasn't really sure until he snuck into the server room for the first time. How about you? Yeah, I was definitely suspicious by the time he spoke to Monel, but honestly, I was suspicious from the get-go. Usually when a character is returned to the rest of the group or the rest of the main cast on television, it happens at the end of the episode because, you know, they build all that anticipation throughout the episode, and of course there's that big reveal. And I've come to realize that, at least normally, when a character is returned at the beginning of an episode, there is going to be some mysterious reason for it all, and that will be the theme throughout the rest of the episode, possibly the next few. Here it only made sense that Jeremiah would betray the DEO based on that, and that's that's why I was suspicious from the beginning. I'm still very confused as to why this is the case, though. You know, when he freed Monel and Carr earlier this season, he seemed to be in his right mind. But something must have happened in between those two episodes, in between that time where they did torture him and beat him for helping them escape to make his motives change. I'm very interested to see what those motives are. Yeah, that's a good point, Michael. He seemed to be the true Jeremiah only a few weeks or a month ago when he let Kara and Monel escape. But maybe it was in punishment for that betrayal that they forced him to be cyborg modified and there's some sort of control mechanism built into the cyborg Superman-like structure or arm. Uh, or maybe he truly is trying to keep Alex safe and Cadmus threatened her life specifically if he did not help rid Earth of alien life or something like that. And it is truly a blackmail situation to force him and force his hand. Or they could have corrupted his mind in some way, like I said, with the cyborg modifications. I, I just don't know. And I agree. It, I, I'm very interested to see what those motivations are as well. When Alex and Kara found Jeremiah meeting with Lillian Luther and Hank Henshaw, Cyborg Superman, in the woods, the girls were split up. Alex went after her father while Kara had to race to stop a fatal train crash from happening, which I've got to say was probably my favorite moment of this episode because that is classic Supergirl stopping a disaster, and it was just plain cool, and it reminded me a bit of Barry phasing an entire train a few weeks ago on The Flash. While her super sister was busy mending the train tracks, Alex had an emotional encounter with her dad in which Jeremiah attempted to explain that he had done it all for her. In the end, though, Jeremiah gave Alex an ultimatum. Either she let him go or shoot him dead to bring him in. She obviously chose the former and he escaped. So, Michael, are we still hopeful that Jeremiah can be saved and redeemed or is he lost to Cadmus? Does does Alex's choice in this moment make you think that Jeremiah is ultimately going to have to die to save his girls or can there be a happy ending? I think he can be, re- be redeemed, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I don't think he's doing what he's doing for Cadmus out of malicious intent or because he even agrees with their their motives or their manifesto. I believe he's doing it to save his family. And that being said, although his actions may be wrong, I think that he will eventually come to his senses, much like I felt Astra kind of did last season, and betray Lillian and Cadmus. Will he die? That's definitely a safe bet. But since we've already seen that at this point, I'm not sure that that would be the case. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It kind of would be a retread of his own story at this point and so, and also Astra's story. So I don't know that we necessarily need him to die for him to be fully redeemed, but that is always a classic case. So (laughs) we can't dismiss it. Michael, where does this story go next? We learn at the end of the episode that Jeremiah stole the alien register and that Cadmus now knows the secret identities and locations of all registered aliens on Earth. So our are they going to send death squads against those aliens or something else? What do you think? Is this a good story arc that will capture your interest? And are you worried at all, like I am, that potentially we could see a bit of a civil war story with characters taking sides now with the Jeremiah betrayal and everyone choosing sides, but not really doing it out of anything but love for both sides? And in that, I mean, love of Kara, love of Alex, love of Jeremiah. They all pick sides based on whether or not they believe believe Jeremiah is being manipulated or whether he's really betrayed the team. I mean, could that happen? And would you want to see it? Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of the Vigilante Registration Act story that Smallville did in its 10th season, actually. A story that in and of itself was extremely similar to Marvel Civil War, which you mentioned, but also very different. You know, I don't want there to be a Civil War within the DEO. I think this episode dove into that and it didn't really pan out and I kind of hated it. So I don't want that. But I definitely think that there will be a manhunt for all aliens everywhere, as you mentioned. That could prove very interesting in time, and that would be a a story that I would actually welcome, because I don't think we've really seen that on any of the Arrowverse shows or even Smallville to a point before, and I think that could be kind of interesting. You know, we'll see what else they decide to do, because other than that, I'm really not sure why else Cadmus would take it, except for that reason. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting as well. I'm not a huge fan of the Vigilante Registration Act from Smallville, or, you know, any of its inclinations or incarnations in the different Marvel and DC stories we've seen over the years, the mutant act on X-Men or any of the other ones. It, it, it just is not one of those stories that I like in comics or in, on television or movies. So I hope they don't go too deep into that as a potential of where this story is going. But I do think it does bear some a, a lot of similarity to what led up to that in the Smallville season 10. So you're you're absolutely right about, about that. I just hope maybe they can avert actually going that yeah. full route. A small detail that could have been easily missed in this episode was that Jean was unable to read Jeremiah's mind when he needed to when Jeremiah went rogues. So that means that Cadmus has found a way around the Martian's telepathy powers. Is this a good move for this series? I mean, Martian Manhunter is so powerful, it's almost too powerful for a weekly series with all the things he can do in comics. If he were really deployed at his full comic book power arsenal in this series, no one would be able to pull anything over on anybody. I mean, he's super strong, he can fly, he can phase through matter, and he can read minds. Good luck trying to pull one over on him. So, Michael, is it necessary for Cadmus to find a way to block their minds from Martian Manhunter's abilities so they can realistically battle the DEO without Jean being overpowered for this series? Definitely, and you're totally right. In terms of raw superpowers, Martian Manhunter is one of the most powerful superheroes in all of comic books. And although he's not as powerful as Superman in terms of raw strength, he could definitely prove a match for the Man of Steel and possibly even defeat him. I believe he even has at times. If Cadmus is going to ever gain any ground, they would have to use mind control blocking technology in order to keep John out. Otherwise, he'd find them easily. You know, in the comics, John's telepathic mind is actually on par with someone like Professor Xavier from the X-Men comic books, and thus could probably find anyone in the world just by focusing on their mind. This would not work for a series like Supergirl and would definitely make John even more powerful than Kara. 
Gamora. And even though I would enjoy that as a Martian Manhunter fan myself, and as a comic book purist a little bit, the show is called Supergirl. So we do need to keep it focused on her ultimately, and we do need her to still, I think, be the most powerful character. I mean, even on even on Smallville, there was a point where Clark had lost his powers, and in order to get his powers back, Martian Manhunter flew Clark into the sun to restore his powers, and at the cost of his own. Uh, Martian Manhunter on that show is even technically more powerful in some respects than Clark was, because that's just the nature of Martian Manhunter's powers. Yet, they had to depower him for over a season because of that. So, I, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of television storytelling to depower him. Yeah, that was my thoughts as well, and basically why I, <laughs> I wanted to get your opinion, because I was like, maybe they need to depower him, maybe they need to bring him down a notch, otherwise he's going to be the superhero of this series. <laughs> I would love a Martian Manhunter miniseries, that could be a lot of fun. Oh, I agree, I agree. Now, was there anything else you wanted to talk about that I might have missed? I heard a rumor that Lyra, who's Wynn's alien girlfriend, is going to join the Guardian team, and things are not going to go well next week or in the, in the coming weeks, and she might end up being almost a Yoko Ono for Team Guardian. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely interesting. As I said earlier, we haven't seen much of James or even Guardian recently, so I would welcome any development on that front at all. But <laughs> but as for her breaking up James and Wynn, hopefully that won't last long. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Alright, well, I think that's enough Supergirl for this week. Now we're going to move on to a show that we... We definitely enjoyed more than Supergirl th- this week, uh, but still had a few issues with as well. But overall, I believe it was a, a pretty good episode. And we're going to talk about The Flash, Season 3, Episode 13, Attack on Central City. My name is Barry Allen. I am the fastest man alive. Grodd and his army of guerrillas bring the battle to Earth-1, but the Flash and his team try and stop them before they destroy Central City. Meanwhile, Gypsy returns to the fight, and Jesse Quick decides she wants to stand with Wally on Earth-1. Michael, the guerrilla attack on Central City was one of the things you were most looking forward to in the second half of this season, but Grodd's actual attack on Central City with his Legion of Apes was sadly sparse and frankly predictable, the only detour being his short-lived plan to seize and launch nuclear missiles, which was foiled by Barry's speed-guessing 90,000 abort codes because, you know, you can get locked out of an iPhone, but not weapons of mass destruction, not to mention that those were actually BRAC-8 MR sand or medium-range surface-to-air missiles, not nuclear ballistic missiles like they said in the story. Those are actually anti-aircraft missiles. If you don't believe me, just Google ballistic missiles and you'll see what they're supposed to look like, and it's not what we saw. But anyway, that was immaterial to the story. Let's not focus on the fact that they weren't actually nukes and deal rather with the lack of an actual guerrilla attack. In reality, the attack was more a threat than an actual battle until Grodd and the apes crossed the bridge into the city and were intercepted by Barry, Wally, and Jesse, who did a bit of a razzle-dazzle to distract them, but ultimately got lobbed to the side by the beasts. Luckily, just then, Cisco and Gypsy arrived from Earth 2 with Solovar in tow. Grodd mixed it up with his rival, and their scuffle ascended to the building rooftop. Solovar got the upper hand and finally knocked Grodd, not fatally, mind you, to the pavement far below. Michael, I thought the Grodd and Solovar battle was pretty great, but were you disappointed 
disappointed by the lack of actual gorilla versus speedster battle this week. Were you expecting more on this front? Yeah, I was, Nico. You know, the Grod Solvar battle was actually awesome, and I really enjoyed that part of the episode. But I was definitely expecting more. I honestly really just wanted to see Team Flash battle Grodd and his army and have a great time watching that comic book action come to life. I was really disappointed that Barry himself didn't really face off against Grodd like he did with Solvar last week. We haven't really seen that, I guess, now since last year. And that was something I was hoping for and expecting, and that just isn't what we got. I didn't really get that this week at all, so it was really, really a letdown. I mean, could it be that they wanted to save their effects budget for an even bigger fight by season's end? Sure. But like you mentioned, the Gorilla City Invasion was the thing I was looking forward to the most since the mid-season, and I don't feel like it lived up to the hype. It's so cool, but again, it just really didn't live up. But as you mentioned, you know, it wasn't really much of an invasion. It wasn't really much of an attack. So my question is, because it wasn't an actual an invasion or an attack, does it still count as a guerrilla invasion of the city according to the future report? You know, it, it, would it still count as that or would it count now as a threat as opposed to an actual invasion? Right. Did they change the future? Did what their actions in bringing Salivar and stopping it before it really got started, does that mean that they changed the future? Absolutely. It, it's interesting and, and, and we'll, we'll obviously get that answer in the, in the coming weeks, but at this point it's still up for debate. Now, like we both said last week regarding the Barry Sullivan fight, a lot of this has to be chalked up to TV budget. Why we didn't get as much as we maybe wanted in this week's episode or last week's episode. Rendering a lot of CGI gorillas is expensive, let alone having to animate all of them in a sort of big clash between superheroes. And I have to admire this series, the Flash series writers and producers for wanting to do this kind of a story on the show. It's big, it's zany, and it harkens back to that fun of the Silver Age comic books before they became sometimes far too grim. But without the budget to really execute that sort of vision, you end up with either the visual dullness of last week's Attack on Gorilla City or the disappointment of Attack on Central City that filled the majority of this episode. Of course, the conversations between Barry and Iris and Barry and Harry about Barry potentially killing Grodd to keep him from doing all this, again, was excellently done in the episode and probably interesting and, and necessary to have and even somewhat motivated by Barry's frustration by whether or not they're doing enough to save Iris from Savitar. But given that the Flash is not Arrow, the idea that Barry would actually kill Grodd is, for me anyway, dramatically a non-starter. Whenever the show dips into this story, as it did entirely too much last season, the entire episode screeches to a halt because it simply doesn't fit. What do you think, Michael? Do you agree or was it necessary for you this week with the Barry contemplating killing Grodd. You know, I'm kind of in the middle on this one, honestly. I know why Barry never killed Thawne, and because in some way he still cared about him because he was his his version of Wells at that time. And not only that, but also he knew it was wrong. But I feel like this story would have made more sense a year ago when Barry was facing Zoom. You know, the idea of Flash killing Zoom seems more realistic than Barry killing Grodd, especially with how frightening and purely evil, as opposed to being misunderstood, Zoom was. So on that front, I felt like it didn't really fit. On the other hand, with Barry being so focused on changing the future and everything that entails and implies, I think that the story was needed simply so that he could get past his fear and move on with his life virus. But regardless of either of those points, I still think that there's an argument to be made that Garad is still a gorilla. And, you know, we, you know, it's not that we shouldn't value all life, but the life of a gorilla shouldn't necessarily be something that we need this kind of debate about. A human life, absolutely. A gorilla life, I, I don't know. You know, this was the one point in the story I had our time taking seriously from the standpoint that Grodd is still an animal and not a human being. That's, I mean, that's just me. I, un 
understand the sentience aspect. I understand that he was alive. I understand that he can speak. And I, I get all that. But it just felt, you know, out of all the things we've seen them do on The Flash, out of all the things we've we've come to believe in in terms of how they tell their stories, this one seemed a little out there to me. Yeah, and I agree with you to an extent, Michael. But I will proffer the that counterpoint that he is a sentient being. He has evolved beyond that of a mere beast and to the point of a sentient being. And I think that changes the argument to almost whether or not Barry is killing a human. You know, it changes from squashing a bug or shooting a feed animal. This is a being capable of rational thought and thus is elevated to another level. And the death of a sentient being, though not human, would be similar to murder in my mind. Primates in general, but gorillas more specifically, share a strikingly similar number of DNA or percentage of DNA and genes with humans, somewhere near 98% with only chimps and bonobos having closer genetic links at 99% similar to humans. And thus, you could could make the argument that killing an ape, even an unenhanced one, would be very similar to murder. But if you add the enhancements and sentience of Grodd and his brothers, it rises above that level where you can say killing a lesser animal. But that's an ethical discussion for another day and others more learned than I to make. So at this point, I think we'll move on. Getting back to the episode, we both predicted that Salivar would be instrumental in helping to stop the gorilla attack. But I felt there still should have been more of Grodd versus Flash, and I think you even mentioned that earlier than we got, where maybe even Flash almost almost beat Grodd before ultimately Salivar challenged Grodd as Alpha of Gorilla City. Either way, I'm glad Salivar and the Flash seem to be beginning that friendship and partnership that permeates throughout the comics, or at minimum, a respect for each other that they have in the comics. Will this come back to the forefront in the future season? Probably. Since Barry convinced Salivar to spare Grodd, does that guarantee we will probably see Grodd again? And could it result in the comic book story where Grodd goes back to Gorilla City and murders Salivar? What would that result do to Barry's there's always another way philosophy? What do you think, Michael? I could see it. I mean, we we could always go back to Gorilla City if Salivar has an issue over on Earth 2 that he needs Barry's help to solve. So that's always a possibility. I'm also sure that we'll see Grodd again, seeing as how he is still alive. Quite frankly, after they mentioned it briefly in passing, I really want a King Shark Gorilla Grodd fight yes. now because that would be awesome. You know, I think it would be really cool if Grodd did return to Earth 2 and possibly assassinate or attempt to assassinate Salivar and take his place being ruler over Gorilla City. It'd be sweet to see Grodd as a season-long Big Bad or at least half a season. I think that would be awesome and I think it's definitely possible, which could ex- expand upon this two-part episode even, exploring the culture and background of Gorilla City that we wanted and how Grodd may possibly tie to the Speed Force as he does in the New 52 comics and maybe even forcing the Flash to team up with the rogues like in the New 52 Flash story, Guerrilla Warfare, where he does invade Central City and the Flash and the rogues have to team up in order to save their city. I think that would be an awesome season-long arc, but whether or not the Flash would actually commit to this is, a, is you know, that's a whole other issue in and of itself, but I think there's definitely potential. Yeah, there's definitely potential in that, and I would love to see some of that rogues team up with the rogues, like the Guerrilla Warfare arc that you just mentioned. That would be fun to see. I think the only problem is with Snart not being currently alive in this series, yeah. it would it would lose something. I agree. But if they bring him back somehow, if the changes being done on DC Legends somehow bring Snart back into the fold, even back to his 
villain only role on the flash then we have the potential because we already know that snart's better nature has been appealed to before so there's definitely potential for barry to do it again in in a guerrilla warfare story even if it means going to a different earth to do yes so that would be interesting as well now at the end of the episode we got two major surprises the first surprise was barry decided that he couldn't worry about only the future and had to start living in the present and planning for the future rather than only worrying about it and fearing. Along those lines, Barry proposed to Iris with his great-grandmother's ring. And I loved the story he told about his great-grandfather buying the ring when he was in World War II and wearing it around his neck for the remainder of the war on his dog tags and proposed on the dock of New York Harbor when he returned from the war. That was so great, and I loved that Joe had saved the ring for Barry until he was ready to give it to Iris. Michael, what did you think of this development? Were you surprised by this proposal or were you expecting it sometime this season? You know, I honestly was surprised, but I'm glad it happened. I think I mentioned earlier this season the possibility of them getting married or engaged this season. I, I could be wrong about that. I remember saying it, but it could have not even been on the air. But I'm glad that this seems to be exactly where the relationship is going. Barry's been in love with Iris for a long time. And this seems like the most natural development and most obvious step that he could have taken, especially in light of what they've been going the past few episodes. Yeah, I forgot that you'd mentioned that either in our first discussion this season or maybe even over the summer when we were discussing doing the DC Nation together this season, we might have discussed this as well, but I had forgotten. So obviously I was surprised by it, even if they told us in the very first season, possibly even the first episode of the series with the whole Iris West Ellen byline, but it it still caught me off guard that they were ready to do it this early in the season. I was thinking maybe a season finale after they had saved and secured Iris's future, that would have been when they would have done it. But I like it. I like this timing. I like the, the idea that it's pushing Flash to forget about trying to only change the future. Start living in the present, enjoying the life that you have, because nobody knows the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Even though he has a sense of what's going to happen, it could all change. And, and so I, I like that idea. Now, speaking of a love connection, how about that Gypsy and Vibe scene at the end of the episode? Also, I love the line when Gypsy says, Are you trying to Luke Starkiller me? Cisco's the only regular character on this show who would have known the origin of that last name, as he reveals in his smile upon hearing it. Also, later in the episode, after she kissed him and walked away, again, Cisco said, I married a woman. Do you like the way this story is progressing? Is it going to be a will they, won't they build up for the rest of this this season and possibly add her as a regular or regular recurring next season? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it makes sense to me. I would be very happy with Live and Gypsy starting something. I mean, good for Cisco. He needs some love in his life. Yeah, absolutely. Now, finally, the second surprise we got in this episode, and before we actually get Iris's answer to Barry's proposal, Wally's own romantic evening is interrupted first by a big belly run and then by him running into no less than Savitar. Are we going to see Savitar go after Wally? Will they fight? Will he kidnap him? Will Wally go for help from Barry? What do you predict for this story next week? Yeah, I mean, my initial thought was that like when Savitar reached out to Julian to make him alchemy, we could see Wally become the next in line to be Savitar possessed. You know, the next, not alchemy necessarily, but the next for to be the vessel of Savitar on Earth before he's actually released. 
least. You know, that would be a really interesting way to do that and could completely hinder Barry's plans to use Wally's increasing speed powers to stop Savitar from killing Iris. And thus, then again, rely on his own strength to do that. That being said, I would love to see a Kid Flash Savitar fight. So I, part of me is hoping for that too. I hope we don't have a hostage situation though, like we did the past two years with Thawne and Eddie and then Zoom and Caitlin, because that would get old the third time around. Agreed. Now, anything else we might have missed for this week's episode? Any favorite quotes? Because there were some great ones in this episode. Yeah, there always are. I mean, there were, I can't really remember anything specific off the top of my head in terms of quotes, but I did love the scene where Grodd took over Joe and almost killed him. That was awesome. And the fact that Barry moved so fast in order to stop that bullet may mean that in the right frame of mind, he could actually do so to save Iris as well. That's just, that's just the thought. Yeah, it's a good thought too. It does seem that now that he knows what is needed of him in the moment, he has time to prepare. Maybe he can be fast enough to stop Savitar with a little help of the right situation, a little pre-knowledge and some extra training. He'll be in the right frame of mind to save her, which he wasn't when he saw it in the future. You know, maybe he'll be in the right, it'll, everything will line up. So he'll be in that perfect situation. He'll be able to actually save her when time catches up with his vision and trip to the future. It's, it's definitely a good thought. I like it. And especially with what you said about if Savitar takes over Kid Flash or somehow corrupts him or makes it so that he cannot be relied upon or his increased speed and increased powers cannot be a hundred percent relied upon, Barry will have to take it upon himself. And that'll be interesting as well. Okay. Well, I think with that, it's uh, about time we move on from Flash and jump into our last show of the week, the Arrow episode, which really potentially changed the entire season with a major reveal and a major change from Oliver and the Green Arrow. So let's talk about the Arrow episode, Fighting Fire with Fire. Oliver faces his biggest challenge yet as mayor when Vigilante attacks him. Felicity continues down her dark path with Helix, and Diggle leads the team in a mission to stop Vigilante once and for all. This week's Arrow really stepped up its, its game in shaping how the rest of the season is going to play out, starting with the impeachment proceedings on Oliver Queen as mayor of Star City. One of the things I really enjoyed about the season of Arrow, making it unique from all the rest, is that the Queen administration plotline with Oliver as the mayor. As someone who's not really all that invested in politics myself, I've really been engaged in Oliver's day job, and I'm really enjoying where this season is going in terms of that story. This week, Oliver doesn't get impeached, thankfully, but for him to keep his office, he had to make up a story about not wanting Star City to lose another hero, therefore declaring the Green Arrow as a cop killer. Now, Oliver has had the law on his back before, many times throughout the show's history, every other season, in fact, but this time is different as the ACU is going to come down on the Green Arrow and his team hard, as they believe Oliver deliberately killed Billy Malone. This is fitting in perfectly with my fall of the Green Arrow theory, Nico. And if the ending of that theory pans out and Oliver is either outed or has to out himself as the Green Arrow to the public, it could drastically change the direction of this series from that from this season on. Nico, did Oliver make the right choice here? Wouldn't it have been easier for him to throw Adrian under the bus? Could he have explained what the Green Arrow told him happened just like he did with Captain Pike and actually come clean with that? I feel like there would have been a better way for Oliver to handle this, but at this point, I have no idea what that could have been. Yeah, you know, I think it is great for story 
and will probably ratchet up the excitement and that pressure on Team Arrow as the season goes forward doing it this way. And what looks like more and more like that fall of the Green Arrow story arc that you mentioned. But I'm not a huge fan of this decision personally. I think there were definitely plenty of other ways for Oliver to explain what happened and why Oliver did what he did and not, you know, it didn't necessarily have to involve throwing the Green Arrow under the bus. But none of the ideas that I had would have been as shocking or grabbed the uninitiated viewer's attention. So I think that's why they did it, to grab headlines, grab ratings, or hope for them since the series ratings are in the toilet as they have multiple times set new series lows in ratings this season. I'm glad that Oliver did not throw the DA Adrian Chase under the bus, even when Chase said that Oliver should, especially with the big reveal we'll talk about next. But that would have just played into Prometheus's complaints and arguments about Oliver and the Green Arrow. So by Oliver taking the blame and putting the onus on the Green Arrow, someone he knows he can, that can actually handle that pressure and extra police attention, it actually probably works against Prometheus's ultimate plan. So at, at least at the moment, moment anyway, I, I believe that's what it looks like. It, it's going against Prometheus's plan, but he could be just stepping right into a trap set for him by Prometheus. Anyway, Oliver could have also told the people that the Green Arrow told him what happened and he felt that it was the best course of action to allow the Green Arrow to go after the real villain out there, Prometheus, who set the Green Arrow up, you know, set him up to kill Detective Malone. But then the question would become how Oliver Queen knows the Green Arrow and people might start looking into his life and his connections too closely. So ultimately, this was probably the easiest for the writers to justify and work work around towards their overall resolution to the season-long arc, and that is why they went with the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns story arc of the Green Arrow being the villain the city needs at this moment. Well, yeah, because he's the hero they deserve, but not the one they need right now. Right. I, I agree with you, Nico, and I think for, I think what irritated me about this whole storyline is that we kind of did this in season three. You know, there's a, there's a point where Ra's al Ghul basically outed Oliver as the Arrow, and in order for Oliver to continue operating as the Arrow, to continue operating as a vigilante and to save his identity, Roy Harper took the fall as the Arrow and actually dressed up as the Arrow and, you know, that's obviously why he's not on the series anymore, but I almost wonder if it would have been easier for one of team to dress up as the Green Arrow and testify on Oliver's behalf. Right. Or on his own behalf, I should say. In, in similar fashion, I mean, this would have been a perfect opportunity to bring Roy Harper back, at least just for an episode, so that he could help Oliver in, in this way again, because what else does he have to lose at this point? Everyone thinks he's dead. That, I mean, that was my thought. But now, on to the biggest reveal of this week. As it turns out, Adrian Chase is secretly Prometheus. All season, we've been trying to figure out who Prometheus is, and I was really hoping for Tommy Merlin, but we've actually been brought back full circle, as the theory we had about Adrian Chase being the throwing star killer was correct all along, Nico. However, at this point in the season, I didn't think Arrow was going to pull a flash on us, and no, I didn't misspeak there. This is literally what the Flash has done for the past two seasons seasons by turning a trusted ally into the big bad halfway through the season. Now, our original theory was that Adrian was also the vigilante, one of his multiple personalities, and the even darker side of that was his identity as Prometheus, with all three personalities living within Chase, similar to the premise of the M. Night film that just came out split. Now, which I haven't seen, by the way, so I, I can't actually say anything other than what I've seen in the trailers. Now, Nico, we also know from our own research into the vigilante character earlier this season that Adrian Chase, at least according to the original DC comic, 
comics is supposed to be the vigilante. They're one and the same in the comics. That's his secret identity. This was partially why we were thinking our multiple personality theory would work out, and I'm still holding on to hope that that may be the case, at least slightly. This week, there's an awesome scene where Prometheus and Vigilante encounter one another on the, and fight on a rooftop. Prometheus throws Vigilante off the roof and he disappears. Elsewhere in the episode, Chase actually takes a piece of Vigilante's uniform from Dinah when she was going to take it to Felicity to find Vigilante, seemingly to hide the truth from her. The only thing that pokes a hole in our multiple personality theory at this point is the idea that Chase was with Oliver during the press conference when Vigilante was planning on assassinating Oliver. And the only reason I said that's the only thing that gets in the way is because the Vigilante Prometheus fight could have easily been mental. So Nico, is it possible that Adrian Chase, Prometheus, and Vigilante are still one person like we theorized at the beginning of the season? If not, is it possible that the reason Prometheus's mother didn't give up her son is that because she doesn't just have one son, but twin sons on opposite sides of the fight, one being Vigilante and the other Prometheus, both possibly being Adrian Chase at one time or another, kind of like the Christian Bale character in the Christopher Nolan film The Prestige. Spoiler alert. Sorry. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I love that theory because it takes my already out there theory that the Vigilante and Adrian Chase and Prometheus characters were all parts of a messed up psyche of a person suffering from a case of dissociative identity disorder or DID, often called multiple identity disorder, and goes to the logical conclusion or extreme by adding the twist that it is not one person with DID, but twins who both inhabit the character of Adrian Chase, DA of Star City by day and warring Vigilante and Prometheus. Prometheus at night. That's amazing. It's so brilliant and so perfect that it almost makes me think it's too clever and too <laughs> perfect to be the truth. Is that mean of me to say that I've lost so much faith in the writers of this series not to screw up things that they seem to have set up perfectly that I don't think they'll actually pull this off? That's what I'm afraid of now. This theory we have is so cool and so seemingly where things are headed that I fear the writers will do something stupid and make it less cool or less perfect. Maybe the Lord Oliver and Felicity arc just ruined me so much that I can't trust them anymore and expect for them to hurt me. Anyway, I do hope it turns out to be our theory, Michael, because how great and unexpected and wonderful would that story be on TV? I mean, it would be incredible. And the fact that we were able to call it so far off would be the most impressive thing I think I've ever called on a podcast before. Now, on another note, Thea resigned this week after admitting that she had replaced last season's bloodlust with this season's political corruption. Well, I don't have much to say about this other than I'm glad she's going off to figure herself out, and I hope she returns to the field as speedy sooner or later. I wonder if you have any thoughts as to what Thea may be up to at this time, Nico. Could she go seek out Roy to help bring her back to who she's supposed to be? Is that how Colton Haynes could be a part of the season? Or will she seek someone like Nessa? Or maybe just go off on her own? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, unfortunately, Will Holland is only under contract for 14 episodes this season so this is how they are writing her out of the story for the time being to go find herself and work on returning to the Thea she was becoming before dying and being revived by the Lazarus Pit. I'm actually fine with this move because I have not really been a fan of Thea as a bad guy or struggling with going bad for a while now so I hope that it gets sorted out and she can be the real character again. If that means she goes off and finds Roy and 
lives with him and works with him to find herself again, all the better because I'd love to see Colton Hayes sooner rather than later on this series. And what better way than to have Thea bring him back into the fold? Regardless, I'll be happy when the real Thea returns. But this one that is leaving, I'm not really going to miss. I completely agree. Now, it's no secret that my least favorite character on Arrow, the Arrowverse, and possibly television at this point, is Curtis Holt, simply because he's literally <laughs> only here to be the token black and gay character and seemingly nothing else. But I was actually glad to see his T-Spheres come to life finally this week and him in action with them has been so terrific. I thought that was awesome. He's been working on those spheres since he was basically first introduced on Arrow, and I'm glad that he's becoming more comics accurate in terms of his use on the show. Hopefully that will continue. Now, Nico, do you have any thoughts about Curtis Balls this week? Could we see more of that in the future? Could he re- rebuild them? Could he upgrade them and make them better, more even like they are in the comic books as their own little artificial AI devices that float around and help him fight? With Cisco creating a new device seemingly every week on The Flash, do you think Arrow will catch up? You know, I actually liked Curtis when he was working at Palmer Tech with Felicity when he was first introduced and working as a tech genius guy, helping solve impossible problems with impossible deadlines. And and I like that more than when he's out in the field and less as a tough guy and rather relying more on his tech gadgets. That's when I really like the Curtis character. Now that his T-spheres or T-balls are done, at least the first versions were, I think his time in the field is going to be more bearable and more fun because I do believe he will create new ones and with new abilities every week or every time he goes out in the field. I like that he's becoming more comics accurate and interesting now, and I'm hoping this divorce thing does not sidetrack him too much from the great character development he's had recently, specifically in this episode. It was his family's deaths that launched his vigilante career in the comics, so maybe Paul is not long for this world to finally make Curtis into the true Mr. Terrific. Maybe it's not going to be a divorce, but a death that ultimately brings Curtis better into this story. I like that theory, Nico, because that almost goes back to a lot of what we've seen almost every character on this series go through. I mean, even in the Arrowverse to a point, death is often something that brings about a hero and brings about a change in somebody to become a hero, or at least to want vengeance, which occasionally does lead to them becoming a hero. I think Oliver is a prime example of that. And I think that would be a very interesting arc for Curtis to go through because he seems like one of the most unlikely people to actually go through that. And if Oliver and Renee and Diggle and Felicity could help him along that journey, I think that there could be a lot of really good character development there. Absolutely. Now, lastly, this week's flashbacks looks to have begun a Brafa civil war. After Oliver proved to Victor and the rest of the Brafa that Gregor was taking Kovar's money for himself, most of the Brafa sided with Anatolia, causing a battle to begin. However, we're cut off there and we'll have to wait to continue with the flashbacks until next week. Nico, we've really been enjoying Oliver's time in Russia this season, and I've loved seeing him train with Talia and be the hood in Russia, even before he gets back to America. Hopefully, we'll see more of that soon. But where do you think this is going? We know that Anatolia eventually takes over as leader of the Bratva and that Oliver at some point becomes a captain, but is Oliver going to stay for the entirety of the war? Will he leave before it's even finished? How will they finally defeat Kovar? Yeah, well, if our theory about Vigilante and Prometheus is not correct and they are not twins on both sides of the fight, then it could be possible that the person under the visor as Vigilante is somehow related back to Oliver's time in Russia like we initially thought about for Prometheus. Maybe we just had the villains switched and their backstories mixed up. You are correct that we know that Anatolia eventually takes over and Oliver is named one of his captains, so that probably implies that Oliver was instrumental in helping Anatolia 
actually win the war against Kovar. But how long was that war? Was Talia still around training Oliver during that time? How long was he in Russia? That's the question. These are all things we just don't know, and I guess we're going to probably find out in the next few weeks as this season plows on towards the season finale in, what, about seven or eight episodes. Where has Talia been lately? Why are we not seeing her in the flashbacks since her introduction? That's one of the things I hope they fix soon, because I think... I even said it last week, that, and I'll say it again here, I like that story and I want to see more of it. This week was yet another great flashback sequence, so despite not getting any of that Talia stuff that I really want to see, I was very happy with what we did see and learn. I just want to see more of the Talia and Oliver training and learning and becoming the hook. Definitely, and and you're definitely right also to point out that we only have seven or eight more episodes until the season finale, and we know that by the season finale Oliver will most likely end up on Leon Yu if that's if they're going to actually stick to that five-year plan that they had been saying they were going to right. so we know that his time in Russia is very short and his time with Talia is very short and if they don't really ramp this up we may have to get more backstory in a different way as to how Oliver was trained by Talia maybe even just through dialogue or through her possibly showing up in the present as opposed to actually seeing it which would be a shame because I think you and I both want to actually see it yeah and there's always the chance that she went to Lian Yu with him to continue his training before causing him to be rescued mm-hmm. and and head back to Star City or Starling City at that time. And so there's it just because the the Russian thing gets wrapped up doesn't necessarily mean that that's the moment he goes back and is ready to become the Hood. Maybe at some point that they went to Lian Yu together and completed his training on the island in that crucible. And you know because it was always kind of hinted at that. He became what he needed to be on the island. Not his entire time was spent on the island while he was gone, but he became what he needed to be on the island, and the island shaped him into what he needed to be. That's why in season two, he goes back to the island to re-find that purpose, you know, and find that stuff. So I think there needs to be some aspect of Talia and him on the island finishing his training to make it all work in my mind. Definitely, I completely agree. I think the only season where he's not on the island you in the flashbacks primarily is is really season three because season five of course we'll see him get back to Leon Yu but I think he only gets back there at the end of season three if I'm correct that being said I'm the island is as you said is definitely what shaped Oliver to become who he is and that's where it all started and that's where it has to end so I'm really excited to see it come full circle in that regard Nico is there anything else we missed about Arrow this week that you wanted to discuss no not that I can think of at the moment all right well I think with that we will wrap this up no legends this week so we'll head right into our closing yeah on next week's episode we continue our reviews of the spring 2017 tv season for dc nation with an episode of supergirl flash and dc legends of tomorrow but no arrow next week as it's going to take a week off for a change and gotham is still off for its ridiculously long spring hiatus until late april but make sure to join us for all our shows that are actually airing next week in our next episode but for now and most of the season we're going to roll dan's pre-recorded closing get out of across the airways podcast network website across the airways.com okay that's across the airways.com you can check out all of our podcast shows available as their own individual programs get the itunes store okay google play 
Play Store. Guys, for the podcast shows, Color Network, we have the DC Nation podcast located at dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, that's dcnation.acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews popular DC Comics related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews Marvel Comics related TV shows and movies. Okay, we also have Throats Cast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairwaves.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airwaves podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairwaves.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airwaves, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, on the mixed radio station, code by Jack Stifle. Stitcher Radio, or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. And if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Got the Windows Marketplace, got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle, got Google Plus, or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Again, it's 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Give the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God, the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con, and it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wukim, Joshua Mercury, James Hayfel, and Steve Nostro, I'm Nico Reifstein. And I'm Michael J. Petty. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys next week, and I hope you enjoyed another week of DC television. See ya. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.